Cutting it up. Doing podcast. Broadcasting. Broadcasting. Time to broadcast. Broadcasting on the internet. Can you believe it? The modern age we live in, allowing people to broadcast from their own telephones. These things used to just be call- for calling people. Call up your Aunt Gertie and ask how she's doing. Call up the pizza man and see what's shaking. This is the first time we've ever been able to talk to people on the internet. I'm sorry, telephone. This is the first time telephones have been used to broadcast on the internet. Welcome to the future you've always dreamed of. There I am. I'm on the computer and the phone at the same time. You know what? It kind of makes up for everything else. The whole dizzying collapse situation, the, uh, the epochal climate disasters and such. I am on my computer and my phone at the same time. If I could put this motherfucker on a, on a Chromecast onto a television, I will have completed the trifecta. I will have hit for the cycle, as it were. I'm not getting any comments yet. Am I actually broadcasting? There you are. There are the comments. Ah, yes. Now I know that I am being viewed. Hello, everyone. It's very muggy here. It's going to rain. It's going to rain tonight, and I think cool things off, which will be nice. And then it's just going to rain like crazy because of whatever tropical storm is going to show up. So today, the president did the thing that everyone was freaking out about. He suggested, hey, maybe we delay the election. What do you think? Until we can figure it out. Everyone freaked out. People, first you had the wave of, of institutionally invested liberals saying, don't worry, that's unconstitutional. Then you had the traumatized populace screaming back, when has that stopped them before? But I've got to say, right now, I'm putting my money... And as I said, as I must always stipulate, I don't know what the hell is happening. <laughs> None of us do. We're only guessing. We're blindly flailing in the dark. So we can only project forward our, our understanding very, very close to the front of us. So anything beyond a few feet is, is mist, shadows and mist. But my guess there is he's setting up an alibi for losing. Way to whine about it because... As people pointed out, yeah, if he wants to not have an election, he could do that. I guess he could say that. He could order that to be done. And maybe Bob Barr and the Justice Department say, like Pompeo suggested, yeah, okay, that's fine. But the election isn't um, carried out by the... Um, elections aren't carried out by the United States government. It should be, but it's not. They're carried out by the states. So unless he's going to send the national, like military units to occupy democratic states to force them not to vote... That doesn't work. If they have an election and he's like claiming a, 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 he's throwing a flag on it and saying none of this counts because uh, you're doing mail order ballots and we need to delay it, that would could be affirmed in court and it could be affirmed by, as people have pointed out, you know, the states that Biden wins that have Republican legislatures could hypothetically give those uh, electoral votes to Trump even if he didn't win them, and. None of that is technically impossible, I guess. But I don't see him having the buy-in with any of these institutions necessary to have them help him do that. I mean, a good example, I would say, is Matt Bevin. 
Uh, Matt Bevan is the recently ousted governor of Kentucky. He had one term. He basically promised to undo Obamacare in Kentucky, a state that has more poor people in it per capita than almost any state we have. Uh, and he did that. He fucking he canceled a program that was working well to provide uh, low-cost health care to people in a state that desperately needed it. A real piece of shit. Uh, but he also governed as just a, a Trump-like contradiction heightener. He, he governed... He covered his corporate agenda with constant antagonistic culture war. Uh, and the thing is, and so then he ran against the son of the last governor, uh, Stephen Brashear, uh, and Brashear won, but Bevan tried to challenge the results. Bevan tried to say that he wasn't going to recognize the votes, and he, he could have, and he was going to make a demand for a recount even though he was outside the margin of error for one, at which point all bets are kind of off. And this is a situation where technically this could have worked, even if it was destroying norms, it could have happened because they, Kentucky has a Democratic, or a Kentucky, Kentucky has a Republican-controlled legislature, or did at that time, I don't know what it is now, and so they could have voted to, yes, endorse Bevin's call for a recount against even the rules. And they didn't do it because they didn't like him either. He had no investment with the state GOP because he had governed like a one-man wrecking crew bent on his own self-aggrandizement. And so when he lost, that was a gift for the Republicans in the House and Senate there who didn't have to deal with him anymore. And I am saying that if the chips actually fall for a, for a Trump-esque coup attempt where he has to press the button that says all of this this hypothetical loyalty that has now trickled out through the entirety of the Republican Party apparatus must now all be brought into action on my behalf. Right now, I don't think that that was what would happen. I think he might press the button, but then it would not activate anybody because they would want to get rid of him too. They want to get rid of him fucking too. And even if they don't, I don't think the true believers are in enough sufficient positions of of, of, of um, leverageable influence in the requisite array of institutions, state, federal, judicial, legislative, military, law enforcement, they would have to come together behind that. Just don't see it. Now, on the other hand, he thinks he's going to lose. He wants to have a way to lose in his mind without having lost. And that is to call the whole thing rigged and then walk away. Now, that's going to get people killed, I think. I think you're going to see more than a few uh, Q people get pushed off the edge by that. Uh, and, yeah, there'll be some, some mass shootings, maybe, or attempts. I mean, the Q, the, the, the Q score so far is very low. The lethality of Q is very low. Even the most damaged Q people seem to be too damaged to successfully kill many people. You got that guy who, uh, who just... Posted up in a van across the uh, across the Hoover Dam, holding up a sign demanding that like some attorney general's report be uh, declassified. Like Trump, Trump's got this whole master plan for Q, and he's going to drop the thing on his say so. But no, he's going to listen to this idiot who fucking waved a sign in the front of the Hoover Dam instead. That undermines like that. That act means you don't even understand your own theory. It's trust the plan. They know best. And you're going to push their fucking... It's like they're committing heresy. 
They're at, it's like Job. They're asking things of God. Where were you when I, I, I hung the heavens? How dare you fucking tell me when I'm supposed to release the Attorney General's plan or arrest the pedophiles? No man shall know the hour of the day. And there was that guy who went to Comet Ping Pong and just like shot one hole through a, uh, through a wall and then left. Apparently there was a Q guy in Sweden who chopped his girlfriend's head off. And there, been, there was a, like a Q guy who killed his father with a uh, katana. That's going to happen. But that's what it's going to be. Because since when to anybody but Trump and his supporters, not people in power, not not military leaders, not people in Congress, most people in Congress, except for the real shiny-eyed uh, true believers, even in the judiciary, none of these people, they don't view the, the, the ascension of a regular democratic uh, administration as apocalyptic, because for the most part, they have not entirely ingested the Kool-Aid. Now, when they do, then all this is over. Once that happens, once the Republican Party is completely on the same page and has fully metabolized the notion of the Democrats as existential threats in themselves, on par with like the Communist Party in the 40s, then all bets are off. I don't think we're there yet. But of course, let me stipulate. I didn't think we were, I thought that Trump made sense and that a Trump-esque figure was inevitable, but I thought we weren't there yet. But once again, I think the difference is, is we're talking about an electorate in one hand, which basically went to Trump not because of, of a overwhelming, you know, uh, being taken with his message, mostly by disaffection and people checking out. And uh, this would be the decisions of people at the highest levels of, of, uh, of all, the sinews of our, of our state. Uh, and they, I don't think they yet see it that way. I think they still are like, we can do business with them. Joe Biden, I know that guy. We made money during Obama. Everybody made out. Everybody got to do whatever they wanted to do. The Army guys got to kick up sand, and, and the CIA guys got to have fun adventures in uh, Ukraine and, uh, and Syria and Libyan shit. Uh, the, the cocaine flow continued. The, uh, the, child, the, 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 the child wrangling and, uh, and trafficking networks hummed along. The, 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 <clears throat> the symphony of commerce was uninterrupted. And Biden is explicitly telling them more of the same. Their fucking uh, party met explicitly to, to denounce, in, in no uncertain terms, the insurgent left on, that is part of their broad electoral coalition. And they have every ability to do that because that insurgent left has no institutional ability to provide leverage against the Democratic Party in any way. Not yet, anyway. This is not a situation where people are going to risk it all. For a man who most people who know him know is not in any way stable or, more importantly, loyal. Or competent. Or any of the things you would want in somebody that you're going to go fucking cross the Rubicon for. And I think the reason people are, are more credulous of this than they probably should be is because they are imbibing all of these cultural products and all of this output, social media output by his voters. And although the process of the voters' views slowly assimilating through capillary action up into the upper reaches of the party, which has definitely happened, it's not a complete process. I don't think we have enough proof of that. 
But again, that's in that's in August or that's in late June. In November, who the fuck knows what the ground conditions will be? Who knows how the economy and COVID uh, and the protest movements and the escalation with between police and uh, protesters and good old fashioned uh, good old fashioned race conflict. I mean, there's there's a number of groups out there who are angling to to provo- provoke a shooting war, uh, a, a helter skelter esque uh, conflagration, and uh, you know. I don't think that's likely, but there's, there's Tinder. And as a result, that's why I can't say with any kind of certainty what I think is going to happen. But I'd say right now, right now, Trump is tweeting that not as a, not as a, uh, I don't even understand what the idea is. If he wants to do that, he should just do it. Or I guess, no, what do they call it? Uh, yeah, testing the water. He's testing the water for this. Maybe. But when does he ever, I mean, does that really describe his communication style? gently testing the water for certain ideas? Or does he reflexively just tweet about what he sees? He watched a guy on Stuart Varney's show on Fox News, a Fox Business, some fucking, uh, some Guido-ass fucking uh, Republican pizzeria owner in Long Island. He sees him going like, Trump's doing a great job! And he goes, oh, go get the pizza, it's wonderful. That's as much thought as he puts into this shit. And so why is he saying that? Because he wants an excuse. Maybe in a few months he'll look around and be like, holy crap, maybe I can hold on to this thing. But right now, I think he looks around and he sees, not good. And the thing is, he might be wrong. Maybe Trump wins. You know, polling, obviously, 2016 can really put the stake in the heart of any kind of confidence you can have in polling. But for me, it boils down to this. It's often been said that every election involving an incumbent president ends up boiling down to one question that every voter subconsciously or consciously asks themselves. And that is, are you better off now than you were four years ago? And that traditionally has been what reelects or defeats an incumbent. Now take Obama, for example. Things were pretty bad in 2012. The unemployment rate was like 9%, I think. Uh, it was still, the recovery was early and rocky. But he was elected during an, a literal economic meltdown. He was elected in, a, in the middle of a slow-motion economic collapse. And so people were better off. Even if things got worse, like even if things solidified into something worse, they were solid. And that's an improvement. George H.W. Bush, just one of the great, his, just tragic stories. Beautiful, the beautiful, I think I've talked about this, the, the beautiful poetry of this guy who mastered the sinews of the American state and party system and, and uh, its connection to, to petroleum uh, and the world markets. The guy, it's like, he's basically Christopher Plummer in Syriana, this maestro, CIA agent, Republican uh, gray eminence, the man who basically forged the alliance between Eastern capital and the emerging Sun Belt West uh, ran more coke through Central America than Pablo Escobar and the Cali could, cartel combined. Uh, no, literally knew where the bodies were buried, maybe up to and including JFK. And he got, and he's a loser, one-termer, because of a tiny little recession that hit in early to, uh, 1992. Just, boop, it was barely a big, it wasn't even a big one. And it immediately, the recovery from it was, was galloping. You, you had the whole Clinton boom after that. 
He'd even engineered a war to keep his numbers up. If anybody's listened to blowback, the Iraq war was a fucking, was a trap laid by the Bush administration to give a pretext for a war that they could then prosecute that would boost his poll numbers, create a new American-led military order to fill the gap created by the collapse of the Soviet Union and to justify Cold War or higher levels of military spending in the face of uh, calls for their cut. They told Kuwait, they told Hussein in so many words, we don't care if you invade Kuwait, just like we didn't care and in fact encouraged you to invade Iran. So he does it so that we can smash him, so that we can squash him like a bug. And it worked. 80% approval rating. God Emperor fucking Bush. No more wimp comments ever. But he did, it ended too early. We won too good. And then the economy just had a little boop. Loser. Clinton gets this dot com, early dot com fucking bubble money. Gets to just whoop, get him through there in 1996. Bridge to the 20th century. 21st century. And in my memory, I cannot think of a president who has gone into re-election where people's answer to that question will be universal, more universally no. Now, of course, for a lot of people, a disturbingly large number, that's not going to matter because they have an internal ideological buffer that turns the awfulness of what around them into more proof of how good he is. But that is not enough people to reelect him. I hope people get that. I hope people haven't like convinced themselves through just the ubiquity of Trump and, and his... His, the solidity of his base, that it is a majority in any way, even among the half of people who vote, it is around 40, 40 to 42%. And I would say the vast majority of everyone else is going to answer, fucking hell no, I'm not. Unless you're Jeff Bezos, fuck no, I'm not better off than I was at four years ago. And elections are still won at those margins. And so, you know, assuming that we actually get an election that is able, that... Assuming the COVID situation in November is sufficient to allow for an election that goes off with any kind of legitimacy, that's a big if. I think he's going to lose. And probably by too big of a margin for him to even, uh, to even realistically claim fraud in a way that would get others to rally to his banner. But like I said, that's right now. But I mean, how the hell do you beat that? How do you answer that question? Unless the person is, like I've talked about, the, the liberal anti-racist idea involves talking to people who have essentially already agreed with your premise. It's the same way with this. The only way to spin the question of how are you better off now than you were four years ago is to have someone already invested in the idea that, well, you know, Trump is trying to change everything for the better and uh, the media and uh, the Chinese and, and all of the Democrats and even the Republicans are trying to stop him. Unless you already believe that, there's no way that you can look at his performance and find it salutary to your life. Salutary, whatever. But we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. The fact that he's running against a, a senile mummy who does not appear to know where he is. Uh, that's a concern. But I kind of think that... I kind of think Trump is counter-mobilizing enough to, to outweigh that. I don't think... Because I think a lot of people... There's always this... There's the theory of, like, mobilization that you're... you're that... Um, there's something called counter-mobilization where you 
by activating your core supporters, also activate the core supporters of your opponent. Uh, and there was a thinking, I think, for Democrats that assumed that Clinton Hillary was going to win in 2016. They believed, well, yeah, okay, we know Hillary isn't terribly popular. She stands in for a lot of things people don't like. Uh, and that means the Republicans, even if they don't like Trump, are going to come out to vote against her. But Trump is just as counter-mobilizing for our side. People hate him and don't want him to be president. And I think one of the big shocks of 2016 is that there was an asymmetrical counter-mobilization that Hillary got people to the polls to vote against her way more than Trump got people to the polls to vote against him because he was a hypothetical, he was a hypothetical thing to vote against. You, were voting, you didn't want him to be in because he seemed like a bad guy and erratic and racist and all that, but you weren't really tacking an uh, agenda to that other than just amorphous badness if you're a liberal. Uh, for conservatives, Hillary Clinton stood in for a very specific legacy that they abhorred. Uh, and I think that the thing that's going to work for the Democrats' advantage this time is that I think Biden is much less counter-mobilizing than Hillary was. And Trump, now that he's been president for four years, and it has gone as badly as the most dire prediction of someone who didn't like him on the day he won how it would have gone, that's going to fill in the gap of Biden enthusiasm. That's the theory. I don't know if it's true. I suspect it might be. Because people don't hate Biden the way that they hated Clinton. Like his, entire, his entire hit on Biden is now about competence and brain power. And the thing is, people don't actually care that much about that. Because they kind of know at a certain level the president doesn't really run anything. It's a whole fucking squad. It's a team. And then there's the vice president. It's like, it doesn't really... And, and it's not like Trump is setting the world on fire. The guy spent two months bragging about passing a basic cognitive faculty test. Essentially passed... He, he bragged about, like, uh, passing a concussion protocol. That doesn't make the contrast. And that was what Hillary's problem, is that she could never make the contrast with Trump work because everything you could say about uh, Trump had a symmetrical thing you could say about Hillary, from corruption to sexual assault and harassment, uh, crooked charities, uh, no account, no talent kids uh, getting jobs they don't deserve. Uncanny. Not the same thing here. What does Biden represent? Biden represents the Obama years. Which, where, during which nothing like this happened. And Trump represents this. I think that's, I think, I think people need to kind of get over this trauma from Trump winning, whereby now they're going to credit him with a power over, like, the psyche of the American voter that I think is not really accurate. But, caveat, always a caveat, we'll see. Because I always get this shit wrong anyway. Just laying out, more than anything, I'm just laying out my thought process. You can agree or disagree with that. More than, like, the conclusion. God, if we don't, if we don't get, we're not going to get a debate. I'm positive. There's going to be no debate. Certainly not in person, which is the only way it really would have been fun. Like, if it's a Zoom debate, it's already ruined. That's the best we can hope for. Like, dueling town halls, 
in, in dueling, like, enclosed bunkers. It's really depressing. There's no way the DNC allows there to be a Hunter-Don Jr. debate, even though... Yeah, it's the same way. Like, Herb and Cain is, like, the high... That's about as where we're going to top out in terms of evil people biting it from COVID, which is still very, very, very low. Just, and we're not, we're not going to get any kind of good debate. It's a bummer. Real bummer, man. Unemployment is not going to be allowed to expire. I mean, they might fuck it up, but that's, a, that's like... That's how there's a lot of malevolence in the COVID bungling, but there's also a lot of just sheer incompetence and lack of institutional capability. There's a chance that Congress is too dysfunctional to pass something that everyone knows has to pass. That could happen. But, I mean, they make the rules, you know, deadline, schmedline. They can, they can fix that in post. That's kind of the whole deal. They're right the laws. Uh, so I think that that's... This, this thing isn't going to collapse because somebody pressed a button that said, make it fall apart, you know? That's not going to happen. No one's going to hit their ass on the self-destruct button. It's going to be people making decisions that they think are in the best interest of the moment that are cumulatively cata catastrophic. And that was not cumulatively catastrophic. That is self-destructive. That's detonating a suicide vest in the heart of the American economy. Why would they do it? And the answer, oh, they're, they're, they're sick. The cruelty is the point. That's the kind of sh emotionalist shit, honestly, that obscures proper analysis of material conditions. So yesterday, somebody was really hollering at me for some uh, Reaganland, uh, a Reaganland update. I hope they're listening or watching or will at some point, because uh, I kind of, I spent the weekend, I was off doing stuff, I didn't, uh, I didn't really read any, but I got back into it, 1979, and there's some stuff in here about, uh, about the neoliberal turn of Carter, that is uh, genuinely, uh, I mean, the material is obviously very relevant, but P Pearlstein frames it in a very uh, insightful way. Uh, so basically he's talking about how by 1979 Cl Carter's completely convinced that, that, that inflation which was the number one domestic issue it's hard to imagine but yes inflation because it was very high it was, it was almost double digits which was just wiping out savings uh, and freaking people out because at that point people weren't all all Debt riddled at that point. Debt was was rare. Debt was to be avoided. It was not just the condition of life now, uh, the way it is now. Uh, so people, it just drained away people's savings. Uh, and he points out actually that one of the big things that leads to the credit, the shift to credit, is people start wanting to buy expensive things right away rather than save for them because it's impossible to save with inflation too high. So charge it and pay a rate of interest that will still be cheaper than waiting too long and seeing the thing get too expensive. Uh, but Carter's answer to this was, oh, inflation is caused by government spending, specifically deficits. And he pursued that to his, the, his party's essential uh, immolation, like destroying his own party. It, and then it had, the carcass rotted on the street until it got filled in by uh, the DLC and uh, the same corporate interests who had taken over the, who owned the Republican Party. 
and he did that out of mis a, a a delusional belief in in the the causes of government uh, uh, the causes of inflation, and then what's really most notable, even more than that, is that so Carter says, "Oh look, we got we have to live within our means. We have to stop." The Amer- we, I, I have to be a politician who, for the first time since the World War II, has to tell people to tighten their belts, to say that they can't, they have to do more with less, which is not, that goes against 40 years of a democratic uh, politics. How am I, I mean, that's, that's undermines our entire electoral uh, uh, raison d'etre. There's no other reason. What's the point of the Democratic Party if they're not there to hand out goodies? from an ever-expanding economy. Uh, and so, like, his, uh, his liberal uh, policy director in 1979 said that Carter must face the new reality he inherits. He must govern based on fact and situations handed to him. He cannot recreate the 60s when he must, conf- govern, uh, when he must govern with the far different problems of the 70s, an era of constraints. They're saying we need to constrain. And in that... And he never asked the question, well, what, do you do? How, what does that mean politically? And I think that's because he had an assumption buried in his assumptions, which was, okay, this fact, this new America must live within its means reality, well, because this is objectively true, the Republicans know this too, and that means we're, both parties are going to have to govern now and campaign with the understanding that austerity is the new normal. As a Republican, if I'm Roger, Ronald Reagan, and I'm looking to take over the reins of government and recreate it, and all that's standing between me and that is this fucking pencil neck telling people that they need to wear sweaters indoors and they can't go out for eat anymore or get a fucking car, what is my incentive to go along with his horseshit about austerity, especially when some fucking uh, some voodoo priests have brought up this beautiful thing, this beautiful... Uh, enchantment called supply-side economics where I can just say, no, no, we cut taxes and that takes care of it. We can still, you can still have indulgence at every level. You might have to uh, borrow some money, but it's fine. It'll all work out. He's under no requirement to listen, to, to do what's best for the country as though that's some sort of objective thing. He can tell people whatever they want to hear, which is what he did. He sold them a line. That's why this book about the rise of Reagan is The Invisible Bridge. He sold them a fucking fake bridge built on, sand, built on a fantasy that was entirely funded by debt uh, and deindustrialization. But that's not what he told people. He didn't say there was, that's where they were making the... He didn't, there was no informed decision that that was the trade-off people were making. It just is what happened. Because he wanted to win. There's a story about Carter getting leaked Reagan's debate prep book in 1980 uh, and then giving it back without looking at it. Part and parcel. There's no re- there was nothing making the Republicans have the, the Democrats buried assumptions about like the guardrails on responsible behavior in government. Fuck that. I also wanted to uh, point to one other thing that's very funny. He had a, uh, in late 1978, there was a state, state visit by Deng Xiaoping, who was just consolidating his rule in China and starting the process of uh, marketization. Uh, and I just want to read this quickly. 
the state visit proved a tonic for the battered president's soul. Quote, he's small, tough, intelligent, frank, courageous, personable, self-assured, friendly, and it's a pleasure to negotiate with him, Carter wrote in his diary, something he'd never say of the congressional leadership of his own party. And I think that's very fitting because uh, De- Jimmy Carter is basically the Deng Xiaoping of the, Republic- of the Democratic Party. So no, no wonder they really got along. I do like, though, that he lists all this great stuff about how great Deng Xiaoping is, but the first thing he says is small. Like he's a, tum- like he's a tumbler guy. Oh my God, Deng, you're so small. You're such a small bean. Ah, you're tiny. Oh, look at you decollectivizing agriculture. Ah, small boy. Uh, somebody's asking if I've read Behold a Pale Horse. Uh, Behold a Pale Horse is a book by Milton William Cooper uh, that is a conspiracy favorite. It's essentially a unified field theory for all, all UFO conspiracies, secret societies. It's, it's, it's got everything you need. Uh, the Soviets and the Americans meeting in a submarine under the Antarctic. But I haven't read the whole thing because it's not... The prose isn't scintillating. But I know, I know the, main, the main arcs of it as a conspiracy, as a, as a deeply... Uh, stewed conspiracy uh, fan. I, I'm aware of the arcs. I haven't. I, I'll admit. I generally don't read a lot of the, a lot of the classic texts themselves because the, most of those guys don't really know how to write, uh, and they love repeating themselves and larding things with purple prose. Just give me the bullet points. That's why I want to throw this out there for anybody who likes conspiracies. One of my favorite documents in conspiracy lore is the skeleton key to the gemstone file. It's, I, this is a thing that I found on Web 1.0 when I was in high school. I printed it off and read it in, in like, during lunch. And it's this amazing layout of, of uh, like 20th century history through the lens. It's like a James Elroy history of the 20th century where Aristotle Onassis is like the kingpin of all world crime He's like fucking Fu Manchu. Uh, and he, of course, assassinates the president, Kennedy, but assassinates a million other people uh, in pursuit of uh, global uh, organized crime racketeering profits. And also kidnaps and replaces with a double Howard Hughes. But the thing I like about it is it's, it's bullet points. It's this date, this thing happened. Like a telex. Very Elroy also. Uh, I read it right around the time I read American Tabloid. And man, that was peanut butter and jelly. Uh, so, love the skeleton key to the gemstone file. But just one more thing about Cooper. Uh, so yeah, Behel de Poe Horse is conspiracy, lo- very a classic, seminal conspiracy text. A lot of people have read it. Uh, not terribly rigorous, but I, the thing I think it's funny about him most of all, though, is that less than a week after 9/11, he was confronted by like U.S. marshals or something over a, over like his, his refusal to pay taxes. Uh, and he got in a huge shootout with them on his front porch, and he shot one of them in the face, I think, and he got lit up and killed. That happened less than a week after 9-11. I just imagine somebody who was a big fan of his finding that out and just being like, what? And then, of course, hanging with refers to the Mark Curry sitcom from the 90s, Hanging with Mr. Cooper. I thought I put, how, put the guy's full name in there, as a classic uh, bit of 
pun, pun based synergy, which I like to do with the titles for some of these. Like a little make them up. We like to have fun here at the Twitch, at the Twitch stream of Chapo, FYM. Apparently the Chinese have bought 60,000 tons of gold to try to put the, this, to put the yuan on the, out there as a world currency. <laughs> I don't know about that. I mean, my guess is it's a hedge. I think everything is just hedges. I think all these moves, I don't think anybody's plan. I really, it feels more and more to me like everyone is just hedging their bets until the Jenga tower collapses rather than pursuing any meaningful long-term strategy. I just don't think that there's the uh, stability, the resource stability, uh, climate stability, uh, geopolitical stability to, to lend itself to significant long-scale, long-term long planning by anybody. So my guess is that they're just covering their asses, but uh, if they make a move, that's going to be, that's a hell of an escalation right there. Katie might have to bar the door on that one. Oh, boy. Mm. What's going on, everybody? I think there was one more thing in here I wanted to talk about. Let me see if I can find it. Oh, this, this is it. I remember now. So, talking about how Carter, in the second half of his term, is trying to figure out a way to package this austerity message. First time ever for a Democrat to tell people that they're not going to get more. More in your paycheck was the Democratic message for 40 years and it worked. How are they supposed to, to do this? The responsible thing. We're doing the responsible thing and surely the Republicans will follow our lead. It's like, not, it's amazing. The levels of the self-deception and just downright uh, failure to recognize reality are stunning. First, just buying the horse shit about... Uh, uh, about deficits being the cause of inflation without a thought, and then assuming furthermore that the Republicans were going to have any good faith incentive to follow through on your responsibility. But anyway, so he's got to figure out a way to make austerity compatible with democratic values. And so let me just read this thing about... Uh, the, it's when they're getting ready to, they're, they're, they're preparing the State of the Union address for 1979. Uh, preparing for it sorely rattled the speechwriters. Worried about complaints that Carter failed to inspire and had no clear idea of where he is leading the country, they decided it was past time to devise a catchy two-word slogan. Kennedy's New Frontier, Johnson's Great Society, Roosevelt's New Deal. Their dilemma, however, was simultaneously inspiring clarity and credibly acknowledging the intractably complex interlocking problems the nation faced. It was compounded by the fact that the problem's conceivable solutions all lay in the distant future, with no political dividends in the, to be harvested for the work required to get there. 
they decided to try to convince the public that the essence of Carter's accomplishments was initiating a process. They tried out phrases like new groundwork and new building blocks. Someone suggested new foundation. Can't we do better? One speechwriter carped. Apparently not. Some form of new foundation appeared in the speech 13 times. Sounds like a lady's undergarment, said one commentator. Daniel Patrick Moynihan pointed out that the phrase appeared in the first stanza of the communist anthem, The Internationale. There's your boy, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, being a fucking epic troll as always. But that really does grab, grasp a fundamental hinge point in democratic politics. And that is the moment when the Democratic Party went from pitching voters on a outcome and started pitching them on a process. We are not promising anything. We don't give anything. The market provides. What we do is provide a process that allows the market to provide. And that is not what the Democrats used to say. They used, they used to say, you got Social Security because of President, FD, uh, President fucking Roosevelt. There was a, uh, there's a billboard in, I think, the 1936 in West Virginia that said, the president knows that your boss is a son of a bitch. Your pay packet's going to go up every year. That was the promise. More, un more jobs, higher wages at those jobs, not just jobs. Jobs got detached from wages right around this time. Uh, and talk about jobs completely detached from wages, too. And Carter is when they can't, the Democrats cannot responsibly make promises. And because the par party is inherently, they're responsible. That's what a Democrat is. They cannot not be responsible. Then all you can do is offer a process. All you can do is offer to be a fair guardian of interests, to be a, to be a umpire or a, a, a linesman. And then you got the Republicans. They're not necessarily offering anything material, but they're offering something, something spiritual, something visceral, which is defending a culture, which is defending a, a, a hazily conceived way of life and concept of hierarchy. That's going to be fucking, that's going to be persuasive in the absence of any material claims by either party. Carter is a shit, absolute dog shit president. And I think that, like, the fact that liberals love him, a while, I used to think liberals are, are wrong to like uh, Carter. No, no, no. Liberals should love Carter. Liber Carter is the ideal Democratic president because he did the right thing against his political interests and it cost him the White House, but not his integrity. There is no more perfect Democrat than Jimmy Carter. Of course liberals love Carter. Carter won that, uh, that nomination because he was a cipher. He, he was also, uh, he was Obama-like in that way. He was promising to redeem a nation traumatized by Vietnam and Watergate. Because he was an ostentatious born-again Christian. Yes, they used, there used to be Democrats, actual Democrats who were like that, not just Dixiecrats. Like New South Democrats were also evangelical Bapt, uh, uh, Christians. He was an evangelical Christian. Uh, he had a sterling reputation. He was a son of the soil, for God's sake, and a nuclear engineer. And he also had a top-rate PR shop that was as cynical 
and as manipulative as Nixon's had been in 68, the guys from Joe McGinnis's uh, Making of a President. And then when he got in there, after promising to be all things to all people, he ended up being nobody to anybody. And for Democrats, his tale is the perfect, that's the way all, Demo, all Democratic, uh, like, in, in, in the, the process-minded Democratic uh, 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 morality play that is always in the back of the mind of, like, the fully conditioned post-Watergate liberals uh, should end in being voted out of office for casting a vote that your constituents don't like. So Carter holding the line on the budget, holding the line on deficits, refusing to try to create a new, a new arrangement that maybe I don't know constrain corporate power and, and profit at the, instead of making uh, instead of ending inflation on the backs of a uh, labor share of uh, of the surplus. No, he he accepted the parameters laid down by the narrow. Uh, uh, bourgeois experts, the narrow range of, of opinions of the bourgeois experts who he surrounded himself with, because by that point uh, the, the power of the labor movement was waning over the Democratic Party, and they couldn't get they weren't there, they weren't in those rooms they weren't there for long enough they weren't persuading they weren't persuading and then they also were not offering enough of a danger to make someone act, they couldn't coerce or persuade we are, whereas, so that meant that the hegemonic uh, neoclassical understanding was accepted as gospel. So he accepts this brainwashing without a thought and then sacrifices his presidency holding to it. And that is, that's, that's, that is the passion play. That's, that's the great example of a Christ-like figure in politics. So yeah, love, love Carter, but uh, if you're a liberal, because he is the ideal one of you. And Think about that. Think about that. Like, do you want to be able to smugly think that you you, you ran things uh, re, uh, with uh, you ran the country with a sense of honor, or uh, is that okay? Is that enough to make up for the fact that you're a fucking historical laughingstock? Yeah, no. Carter was the first neoliberal president in that he had internalized neoliberalism at an ideological level, which I don't think any of the other ones had. I mean, partially because it wasn't yet fully formed. But he had, he had internalized it. He believed it. Like, his, 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 his diaries, we got to get that budget deficit under control. Like, they believe that shit. That's the thing. There might have been a cat. There was a, a budding capital revolt happening under Carter's feet. But that's one of those things where these are mutually reinforcing phenomena. And like looking at the degree to which capital was able to reassert control over the political process in the 70s, absent analysis of the Carter administration's breakneck run towards neoliberalism is incomplete. 
I think you can assume that if they had actually fought on firmer terrain and attempted, I don't know, to yoke the strength of the still much more powerful than it is now and much more organized American labor movement, maybe they could have fought back. He didn't want to, though. Like it, it, was, it, was, it was not even a question of him uh, like bending the knee like the Starks when Avon Targaryen showed up to avoid the North being burned up by Dragonfire. They never, they, he didn't want to fight it. He went in there with, we're gonna take, I'm going to discipline this party. There are a bunch of kids running around, or there are a bunch of babies, big old babies, looting the treasury for all their pork barrel, and I'm going to spank their bottoms. So yeah, like Capital would have won probably in the end. Carter probably would have lost. But maybe the terrain is different. Maybe, it, maybe the party does not become the absolute husk it is. Maybe, maybe points of resistance sh- change the, the shape of our descent and leave us now in a period of critical crisis with a higher capacity than we have to resist it. That's all you can ever say about any historical counterfactual. Greater or lesser degrees of coping with the overwhelming and shaping forces of material history. Now, the real counterfactual is what if Reagan wins in 76? Because Reagan could have beaten uh, Ford. I mean, it came down to the Mississippi delegation at the, at the uh, convention. They were essentially tied to delegates going into... Uh, last time that's happened, uh, it going into Kansas City in 76. And Reagan, I think, won more votes in primaries than Ford did. Or if he didn't, it was close. Ford, if Reagan had been the nominee, he could have beaten... He might have beaten Carter... Uh, and then he would have presided over, he would have had to have given a Republican gloss to austerity unless he decided to just ignore it and spend like crazy anyway because he didn't really believe any of that shit. See, there you go. That's why these things are difficult. I don't know. It really, you really need the perfect storm of, of, of these self, uh, self-policing process dorks taking over at that exact moment. But Reagan absolutely still would have broken labor. Uh, no question about that. But the thing is, he did that in the 80s and it didn't matter. Yeah, you know what? That's it. Somebody was, we were, somebody was asking me about the difference between the analog and the digital high. And I was trying to talk about how, you know, digital high is sort of a sim- simulacrum. It's, 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 it's a ones and zeros version of getting high. And somebody says it's shorter lived. And that is it. Yeah. It's, uh, it just doesn't last. It doesn't have any kind of resonance. Uh, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is playing Grant. I thing is, I like Leo. I thought he was fantastic in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, and his performance in Wolf of Wall Street is an all-timer. He got fucking ripped off. I, I didn't like The Revenant, and he wasn't good in it, but I consider that compensation for getting ripped off for not winning Wolf of Wall Street. His 
just 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 him winding up the the floor, the boiler room floor. Those scenes are phenomenal. But I don't know if I buy it. The thing about Grant is that Grant was, and the, this is the problem with making the Grant the focus of a movie, is that Grant was a guy who faded into the background. He was not a prominent personality. He was, and, and especially contrasting in an era of just peacock motherfuckers like George McClellan with his little Napoleon with his fuss, old, old fuss and feathers is what they called uh, Winfield Scott or, because of the ornateness of his uniform and his penchant for pageantry. Uh, Grant, no, just blood-spattered boots in a private's uniform, very soft-spoken, rare, for, rare to get angry. Uh, his whole, like, anything that's charismatic and interesting about him is about, like, just being a, a, a cool and calm presence. And I think that could work in battle scenes especially. Like, Sh- Shiloh's a great example. Yep. Uh, he's, he, gets, he gets buffaloed and uh, absolutely... Absolutely just shocked by a surprise Confederate attack that almost drives him into the fucking river. Uh, and that night, he's at the camp where everybody's frantically trying to, you know, dig in and worried about something... Worried about the next day. Nobody knows what's going on. And Sherman comes up to Grant and he goes, well, we've had the devil's own day. And Grant goes, yeah. Looking tomorrow, though. And then they did. They kicked their ass. Uh, So that could be work, but, like, I just don't see Leo as that guy. Leo is the cauldron. Leo is the simmering pot. The vein. Like, when I think of... Some actors have, like, a, a, a... some physical feature that is where their acting sort of concentrates. And for me, uh, with Leo, it's that line in the middle of his forehead. It's just this, like, center... It's like a seam. It's like a tectonic plate contact point where all this lava comes out. That's not Grant. And also, Grant didn't really have a... have a lot of, like... Dramatic moments. I mean, Chick- uh, Chattanooga is very, very dramatic, but he just watched that. I mean, he was a general. I don't know. I don't know. I think Grant would be more interesting in a, in a movie about the presidency than about, uh, about the war. Brolin could maybe work. Brolin has that, like, quiet reserve thing. I actually thought Jared Harris kind of got it. Some people don't like him in Lincoln, but I thought, I mean, you know, because he's not a guy who does a great American accent, but I just thought that his sort of quiet uh, centeredness was appropriate. But, I mean, I'll watch it. There's no question about that. If we still got TV, if we still got movies... And we still have uh, programming. I will watch it. Now, oh, Grant and the Clan would be interesting. 
My favorite movie about the Civil War will always be Glory because I saw it when I was a kid and the ending hit me so profoundly and emotionally that it basically made me single-handedly into a Civil War nerd. So, uh... So, yeah, nothing's going to beat that one. Sherman would make a better movie. The, the March to the Sea is genuinely apocalyptic. And that, that really depicted on screen would be, would be amazing. And Sherman is much more of a character than Grant was. Because uh, Grant, you know, he was like a melancholy alcoholic. And a quiet one at that. Whereas, uh, I would say that, I think they've, like, remotely got diagnosed Sherman with, like, manic depression or bipolarity or something. He famously said of Grant, I stood by, uh, he, stood be, he stood by me when I was crazy, and I stood by him when he was drunk. He's got the red hair, too. Ah, yeah. Sherman movie would rip. Yeah, Sherman was a big neurotic, and that's another classic Sherman quote, is he says, like, I'm smarter than Grant, I'm more tactically and strategically uh, uh, adept than him. I've more, read more on, on, on military theory. But there's one thing that he has me beat on every day, and that is that I cannot... He's that he does not care what the enemy is doing. He fully focuses on his disposition, whereas I cannot think of anything else than where the enemy is. And it, it undoes me. And that's what undid a lot of uh, Union generals. Uh, uh, fucking McClellan more than anybody. And the contrast between McClellan and Grant is so poignant because McClellan was the boy genius. He was already calling... They were calling him the Loma Napoleon before the war started. He thought of himself as, like, one of the great American military officers before he fought his first battle. Which is one of the big things that contributed to him, as well as his sympathies for the South and slavery, uh, because he was a fucking copperhead, basically. Just, my God, terrible, 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 disastrous choice. But, um, but anyway, had to happen, you know. Losses into lessons. One of the big reasons he wouldn't fight is because he didn't want to lose. He wanted to destroy his impression of himself and the world's impression of him. So he just drilled and drilled and drilled and organized the army. Everybody talks about what a great organizer and logistics guy he was. It's like, yeah, that's all he did. No, I hope he would be fucking good at it. And then when he fought, he fought poorly. He won every battle in the seven days, but he retreated after each one because he thought he was about to be overwhelmed. He, of course, he got Lee's orders to his fucking divisions. They fell into his hands because some asshole courier dropped him and rolled up in some cigars. And he still... Nearly, he still fought, he still was only able to get a draw at Antietam. God, imagine if Grant had gotten Lee's fucking orders like a wrecking ball. And one of the big reasons he lost it, he didn't, wasn't able to overwhelm at Antietam is because he wouldn't commit his whole force at once because he didn't want to get beat. Grant was a fucking loser. Drummed out of the army for alcoholism. Only won the army in the first place because he didn't really have anything else to do. Failed businessman. Uh, kind of in-laws ashamed of him, wishing that this, their uh, daughter had made a better choice. Uh, so he didn't give a fuck. He was, he, was, he was able to concentrate on what was actually in front of him instead of fighting castles, fighting armies in the sky like McClellan. And so he loses the first day at Shiloh and he's like, okay, we'll win tomorrow. I mean, my God, I, 
I, if Shiloh had happened to McClellan, I just imagine him like falling on his sword like a Roman consul. Yeah, Grant couldn't even farm, for Christ's sake. In the rich soils of the Midwest, which is literally, that's why people live there, is because you can farm there. Ah, uh, yeah, no, he is, Grant is the promise. Grant is the promise. Is that Whig, is that Whig, Jeffersonian to Whig, like, yeoman farmer, like, citizens, just the idea of, a, like, a whole citizen, you know, created in the frontier experience. Um, but of course, there is no such thing as a whole citizen, and he had his uh, he had his problems and his lacks and his lacunae as we all do, and it helped undermine him. Although I don't really blame him for like it's not his fault that Reconstruction ended. Uh, he 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 pursued it with real vigor. Um, it's just that if if we were gonna if we were going to hyper-exploit the South after the war, which is what everyone wanted to do, everyone was waiting to just carve up that land, uh, then there was no way to build the sort of multiracial democratic society that would have... Well, basically, the way we could have made Reconstruction work is if we had made the agricultural South into the agricultural North. As in, people buy this kind of small-holding farmers like the Grant family. Create more grants out of the, out of the ex-slaves and the, and the ex-Confederate uh, smallholders by breaking up the... But the thing is, is that that cotton man, that was the engine of the Ameri one of the engines of the American economy. Replace, replacing that with small-holding uh, small land uh, 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 yeoman producing like surpluses that they sell on the market for like goods at like the at, at the craft level you've just pulled the engine out of your economic dynamo so the question is was there was there a hypothetical combination of elements existing in America after the civil war to do that to do a smallholders yeoman reconstruction Wipe out the planter, planter, planter class. I'll be, I'll be nice and say you don't even have to execute all of them. Although I wouldn't shed a tear if they had. But dispossess them entirely. No land. Anybody, all plantations, not sold to, to fucking speculators. All of them broken into lots. And distributed to all races. 40 acres and a mule. You would have had to have some sort of economic alternative to uh, uh, the, 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 um, to the cotton economy of the South. So it's, a, it's an economic question. It's an economic question. And the problem is, is that the same war that ended slavery, fittingly, the fighting of it created a capital concentration in the North that became overweening. And soon enough, essentially, captured the entire uh, infrastructure of government, which led, of course, to the monstrosity of the, of the Gilded Age and the robber baron rule. And that's why there is a, like a revisionist left take on the Civil War that says the North was the bad guys because they ended up doing the dirty work of finance capital 
to fully proletarianize like the South. And like that's true in that it's describing what happened, but it's, the normative argument is absurd because nobody knew that that's what was happening and it didn't have to happen. Just that's how the intersection of material reality and happenstance, the arising stochastic chaos of, of, of the human natural order shaped us towards that. And the counterfactual question is like, would Lincoln surviving have been enough? Uh, I don't think by itself, but my God, it would have helped. Oh, Jesus. That's, I am, I'm fairly agnostic on the question of JFK living, making things much better, because honestly, his assassination, I'm agnostic on whether he would have really ended Vietnam, but it's pretty clear that he was completely fucked on civil rights. He was in a logjam, and his death cleared so what happens with civil rights if, if, if there's no, like, sacrifice of Kennedy to break, break up the, the Senate logjam there? Like, how much does that exacerbate domestic uh, racial conflict? There's all these questions you got to ask. So I'm like, JF, JF, with everything with JFK, who killed him, whether he was good or bad, I'm, I'm agnostic. Lincoln, I really think, almost, we would have been slightly to perhaps butterfly effects working in the right way vastly better off if lincoln had lived but i don't think it would have been enough by itself but it could have been a precondition for other things i don't know i also like to imagine garibaldi getting that commission to be the commander of the union army because of course garibaldi's condition of, uh to take off power was you got to make freeing the slaves the point of the war and uh because he would have commit he would have waged a, a guerrilla war because that he was a guerrilla fighter uh and that meant he would have when he captured uh territory in the south he not only would have freed slaves the way that fremont did and uh and benjamin butler contraband uh without and, and that was controversial because it was not without with it was without the orders of the uh of washington but he would have armed them immediately Created a, created a literal insurgent, rolling insurgent army, uh, which would have changed the, the players uh, in the post-war political discussion, changed the, the terms of the debate and the, and, the, and the conditions of the parties going through the, uh, the political process immensely. But one of those tragedies of history is, is that even though I think that that would have been acceptable at the end of the war among most Northerners, I mean, we are, the, the, the Union finally did arm black soldiers. Uh, glory is about that. Uh, and that they, they fitted up some, you know, contraband units. But that was after years of bloodshed and after slavery had risen in centrality to war aims. In the early war, when everyone really wanted to, like, keep it narrow and about a slavery, at least at the top, I mean, partially to ally racial anxiety, but also to keep the border states from seceding. I don't know. I've thought about this stuff a lot, as you can imagine, when I wasn't going on dates in high school. Yeah, that's so annoying about all the fucking Columbus stuff. With these fucking Italiano guys. 
Has no one offered to just do, like, switch it with Garibaldi? I mean, for one thing, Columbus was not Italian. He was Genoese. Italy was not in any sense a unified country or concept. He was a Genoan. Garibaldi literally made Italy into a thing. Garibaldi is the reason you can even call yourself Italian and not Calabrese or something. Or uh, Napolitano. You dumb fucking... I'm trying not to use any anti-Italian slurs here. But it's just very frustrating. I saw a, uh, a billboard. It's apparently in Connecticut. And it was paid for by some local Italians. And it says... The first Italian-American, Christopher Columbus, welcomes you to Connecticut. And I thought that was pretty funny. Because for one thing, he's dead. I don't think he's, he's welcoming me anywhere. Secondly, we can argue about whether he's Italian. Because you could say, oh, yes, there might not have been an Italian state, but there was an Italian language. Even though Italian is notoriously dialect-heavy uh, like, uh, dialect and, and, and uh, relatively... Uh, unintelligible across relatively small distances, traditionally. Um, But even if you want to call him Italian, he 100% was not American. By the way, these people talk about America. Because when people say, like, I'm Italian-American, they don't mean in that, like, you know, uh, globalist, like, well, the United States is not the only country in the Americas. Anyone in North and South America is technically an American. I'm going to call them a USian because they're not American. Now, of course, these guys don't go for that bullshit. American is USA number one. And Columbus never set foot in the United States. He went to Hispaniola, and at one point I think he went to the South American continent. And I'll fucking guarantee you, the guys who put up that sign do not think that anybody from Hispaniola or South America is an American. I guarantee goddamn to you, they do not. All right. This has been fun. It was a good one. I've had a good time. I hope you have too. Keep tuning in. Bye-bye. Oh, I think I might start raining.